We're going to be looking at Psalm 24 in our time together this morning. Um, you probably didn't pick it up, but there was a logic to the last two messages I've done. I've done Psalm 22, which talks to us about Jesus as the suffering, suffering one. Psalm 23, Jesus as the shepherd. And today, ultimately, we'll get to Jesus, who is the great sovereign king uh, in our time together. A couple of years ago, I, I was sitting at a class at the University of Penn. And I had a, one of my classmates there was Jewish. And I asked her, I said, um, so what are you going to be doing? And I, I don't remember what time it was in the year, but it was part of the Jewish religious calendar. And she, she was saying, well, I'll be going to be going and we're going to be doing this particular series. And so I said, oh, that, that, that's, that's really good. So, so God's like really important to you. Yeah, you know, it just seems kind of like makes sense that I could ask someone. She goes, no, I don't even believe in God. I'm an atheist. Really? Oh, yeah, but, I, but, I, but I, I go to synagogue and I do all the Jewish stuff because I just, I love it. I love all the ritual. I love all the stuff I do, but no, I'm, I'm an atheist. I said, I, I, I was just, oh. <laughs> I was thinking more, but I, I didn't know. I, mean, I was just like totally taken back. You would go... And be a part of something when you don't even believe in the God behind it. Yeah, it happens. It, it happened with her. Do you ever wonder why people come to church? It's probably a whole host of reasons, right? Some people might do it just because it's part of their tradition. It's what they've always done. Other people might do it because it's some good business connections. You know, people you can meet and so on and so And honestly, I, there's people in my mind I'm thinking of, not from here, from other places where I'm saying, you know, I've, I've seen that kind of thing happen in churches. But I guess my question for you is, um, why do you come to church? What, do you, what are you looking for when you come? What's, what is it that you want? One of the things we find in Psalm 24 We find a true worshiper of Christ who tells us why they come into the presence of God. And we can learn some wonderful things about not just why we should come to church, but why we should live and how we should live as worshipers before God. So what does a true worshiper do in the relationship with God? Let's see what Psalm 24 tells us. There is a, a simple outline in your bulletin if you want to use it. If you don't want to use it, that's okay too. You'll get the same information. So what is involved? What characterizes true worship? Psalm 24, and, and the, the, this is a, a psalm of David. I, I don't know exactly when this takes place in, in David's life. If I had to make a guess, and it's, it's only a guess, scholars really don't know, Perhaps it's tied into the time when the ark of God was being brought up to the tabernacle for David. Perhaps, perhaps. We, we don't know exactly, but that's probably as good a guess as any. This is what we learn in verses 1 and 2. We learn that worshipers believe God owns all because he created all. Listen to what the text says. The earth is the Lord's and Everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 
For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. A couple things that I find to be interesting in that text. One of them you might not pick up as an English reader. But you are living in a world in the ancient world where there's all kinds of gods. The, the strange thing in our world is we live in a world where, where the secular world says there are no gods, right? It's explained by naturalism and stuff like that. And we're saying, no, 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 there really is a God. Well, in the ancient world, it was a flip-flop of that. Everybody had a God. You know, there are gods everywhere. And Israel was constantly saying, no, 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 there's only one God. It's, it's, it's Yahweh, right? So that, that's kind of what you're finding out there. And when it talks about he founded it on the seas and on the waters, there was a whole Canaanite tradition that talked literally about the God of the water and the God of the sea that had this incredible control over all kinds of things. And you know what I think David is saying here in Psalm 24? When you look at the world around us, there is only one God. And, and he founded the earth. You can take all of your Canaanite gods and all the powers they have. They are nothing. He founded the earth and the world and the universe and everything on top of all that stuff because that stuff is nothing. They have no power. There is one God. He owns everything. He created everything. Now, I know that's debated in our day, how all this came about. And I know people debate process and all that. But at the end of the day, the scripture is very clear. The great who question of creation is God. He did it all. I may have said this to you before. Maybe you've had this issue if you have one, more than one child. One of my children, I, I'll try not to tell you which gender it is, is in the bedroom. And another gender comes in and they say, get out of my room. This is my room. Your kids ever say that? Okay, you know what I'm talking about then. And what I normally do when I intervene, is I come up and I say, excuse me, do you pay the mortgage? <laughs> I pay the mortgage. I mean, I paid for this house down payment. When you're gone, I'll still be paying on it. <laughs> and even after it's paid on, I still pay property taxes for the rest of my life. Do you, like, do you ever own it? Uh, whatever. You know how that whole thing works. But, but, but the point is, I tell my kids, no, you own nothing. I'm letting you use that bedroom for a period of time, okay? So, so just let's get this thing straight. How often does God have to tell me that? That's my car, my house, my job, whatever it is. And God says, Doug, you own nothing. It's all mine, and I let you steward it. The question is, how do I steward what he's given me? How do I steward my family, my relationships, my job, all the things he brings onto my plate? And this text tells us, look, worshipers, look to a God and say, it's all yours. You own it all. You created it all. That's what a worshiper does, recognizes. She recognizes that. What God can compete with our God? Any? Naturalism? Nope. 
Individualism, forget it. Materialism, nope. As one man said, one day every ism will become a wasm. <laughs> Isn't that true? Because there's only one true God. He is the creator of all. He owns all. And man, it's, it's, it is. It is. When, 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 when the group leads us in singing worship, don't you love the, this worship team up here? I'm telling you. I, I'm telling you. I don't want their heads to swell, but man, we, this, this is good stuff. Okay? I, I just, I, I love it. God wants us to come and not just have some kind of an emotional turn on. He wants, as an overflow of our life, for us to come into this place and remember afresh how incredibly great he is. Isn't that what it's about? And a true worshiper is not about impressing anybody else or singing louder or whatever. They don't, they just want to say, God, you own it all. So I worship you now. I worship you in my life in such a way that I say, I just want to obey you and honor you through my life. That's what a true worshiper does. Secondly, in verses 3 to 6, we find out that only humble worshipers with integrity can experience God's blessing. Let me read it, because it does raise some questions that I think we need to kind of wrestle through. Some scholars have said, I don't know if this was done antiphonally, but you do wonder if, if, if you almost have worshipers coming up to the temple and asking this question, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in this holy place? And, and maybe the response coming back from the Levites or whatever. Here it is. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and, and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. If I ask you, do you have a pure heart? Is that an easy one to answer? I don't know about you, but if, if, if someone says, is your heart pure? I, I, I kind of feel it's almost proud to say yes. Don't you? Like, are my hands clean? Am, am I doing everything just the way I'm supposed to be doing? I don't know about you, but like my answer to that is like almost never. I mean, I want to, right? I, I think God's making it a greater reality. But if you're looking for a batting a thousand, I read a psalm like this and I say, man, um, are my hands clean and pure? So it, 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 it can't, when the Bible talks about clean hands and pure hearts, it's not talking about perfection. You know why? Because none of us could worship. But it does mean we are people with repentant hearts, humble hearts, that are coming back to God on a consistent basis, saying, here I am again, Lord, forgive me, work in my heart, but I, I want to honestly live purely before you. That's what he's talking about. You say, well, how do you know that from reading this passage? Are you reading into it? No. Look at what he says here in verse, verse, um, verse 6. It's very important. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, 
And literally in the Hebrew, who seek your face, and then it just says Jacob. A lot of the translations put God of Jacob in here. I'm not sure exactly because I think this is what he's saying. It's very, very important. It is not just that people come up to the sanctuary, Jewish, Jewish people, and they can say, man, I got this great track record. My heart is pure. My hands are clean. I just, I'm just a great person. If, if that's what you're picturing here, you're not picturing the right thing. When he says, such is the generation that seeks God, why would people even come up to the sanctuary in the first place? You know why? Because they realize they need sacrifices done for them. They're not in the right relationship with God. They desperately need God. And the reason he uses the word Jacob here, it's very, very important. Because he could have said, such is the generation, such is the generation called Israel. But he doesn't. He says, such is the generation called Jacob. What do you know about Jacob? Thumbs up for Jacob? Now he's finally going to be given the name Israel. That's going to be a good thing. Think what he's looking at here. He's looking at this Jacob character who was a bit of a uh, gray character, frankly, when you read through Genesis. But he had these times in his life when he finally stopped doing it his way. And in humble repentance before God, he came and he said, God, I am desperate. I need you. There's nothing left. I won't leave till you bless me. Remember that? That's why I think he uses the word Jacob here. We are people who come into the sanctuary. We never come cocky. Hey, I got a great track record. I'm clean. My hands are clean. My heart is pure. (laughs) Think by her. Wow. No way, man. No way. I'm always a seeker like Jacob. God, I desperately need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your cleansing. I need your transformation. I'm I'm just a seeker of you, God. Open, honest, humble. I come before you. My hands, they're as clean as they can be because I've repented. Here I am. That's what he's talking about, folks. The problem so often in the scriptures is not between somebody being perfect And being imperfect. It's a difference between somebody being a hypocrite and somebody being honest. And so in Isaiah chapter 1, when Isaiah indicts the, the nation for God and he says, you folks are coming up and doing worship to, my, to, 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 to Jehovah. You're doing all these sacrifices. You're doing all this ritual and you're going out and you're mistreating your neighbor and you're lying to your wife and you're sleeping around and you're this and you're that and you're all these kinds of things. And God says, I will have none of it. Don't even come. Because you come as hypocrites with dirty hands and an impure heart. And this is merely ritual that you're doing rather than an overflow of who you are and what I'm doing in your life. So don't even come. And James, in James chapter 4, remember that passage? It's pretty strong. 
adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Remember what he says in there? Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Is it possible for people in the church of Jesus Christ to play church? To play Christianity? And if that's where you find yourself, Psalm 24, Isaiah 1, James 4, will say, don't play Christianity. It's not about being perfect. It's about being honest and repentant before God. Do you see? And, and in James 4, people are playing, they're manipulating and using and doing all kinds of things for their own purposes. And James cuts through and says, that is enmity against God. Your answer is to submit yourself to him. And then you can cleanse your hands. And then your heart can be pure. Because at the end of the day, it's about living in repentance before God. It's the same thing. It's all the way through the Bible. Folks, brothers and sisters, or, or people that don't know Christ that are here, we're so happy you're here. But man, I hope you don't ever play Christianity. I hope you don't play church. Because God is the one creator God of all. And he calls us in humility and in purity, not in perfection, but in repentance to come honestly into his presence. And when we do, God says, I will bless my people. Doesn't mean I get everything I want, but it means I live out the design that God has for me from the beginning. I mean, I, I hope that's your heart. I, I hope that, I hope you don't compartmentalize Christianity. I, don't hope, I hope you don't think like six days are yours and then you'll kind of give God a day and then back to you again. Worship is all of life. And, and Psalm 24 says, humility, purity should mark my people as they come into my presence. Here's the point. If I live a life of humility before God, repentance, honesty, openness before him, allowing his spirit to work in, this, in my life, do I have to impress you? I can tell the truth to you, can't I? So, so I, don't, I don't have to swear falsely or, or manipulate or eh, I don't do any of this. I can just, I can be a person of truth because I don't have to impress you. Matter of fact, I may want to tell you the truth because maybe you can help me. That's a good thing. And, and this passage frees us to worship. It doesn't bind us in our worship. It frees us to worship as we're humble and honest and repentant and open before God. And he's at work in our life. And we can literally, literally say by the spirit, God is at work. My hands are cleaner. My heart is pure. Positionally, I'm pure in Christ. But, but practically, I'm experiencing that in my life. We're not talking about batting a thousand. We're talking about growing. Does that make sense? And that's what this psalm is calling for. Be a true worshiper. Be in awe of a creator God who owns everything. And when you come in the holy presence of this God, realize that you can 
They had all kinds of sacrifices. What sacrifice do we have? Christ. We can come into his presence and humility and openness. Spirit can work and we can worship. He says one more thing. Here in verses um, 7 to 10. Carmelo already read this for us, and, and it, it, is, it is interesting because you're so right. It's so much like, like these songs where, where if you say it twice and you don't get it, then there's something wrong with you, right? I mean, so if he says it twice, it's for emphasis, right? It's not absolutely identical, but it's pretty close. I want to first of all talk about what I think was happening then, and then I want to talk about Jesus, okay? So we'll get there. Listen to what he says. Lift up, and, and, you know, one of the things I was going to do, but I decided not to. I was actually going to try to do this antiphonally with everybody, one side and the other side, but I thought, eh, probably, I, I didn't have enough time to think about it. I'd probably get all messed up. But, 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 but yeah, who can ascend? Da, da, da. But I, yeah, we didn't do it, so. <laughs> Maybe some other time we can work this up, Carmelo. We'll just do it this thing, but it didn't happen. So I'll just, I'm just going to read it to you this time, all right? But I did think about it. Um, verse 7. Lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Now, I have a question for you. Because I was, when, I was, when I was first reading this psalm, I thought, this is a little bit strange. Okay, so you have this picture. Okay, God is the God of all. He created everything. But in a very special way, he is present in his tabernacle, right? Right? In the Old Testament. That's kind of what happens. So I'm thinking like, okay, I got it. So who may ascend into the, all right, I'm getting that. But then I'm thinking like, well, if he's there, why do we have to let him in in verses 7 to 10? Are you following my question? I'm just reading the psalm. I'm thinking like, okay. You own everything. You're here in a very special way. Who may ascend? True worshipers. And then all of a sudden he talks about the king of glory who's out here, who's not there. But I thought he was already there and I thought he is the king of glory. Like, what's going on there? Does that make sense? Maybe you don't think like me. I just read. I ask a lot of questions when I read. And probably, probably what's happening in the ancient world, because how is God pictured as the king of glory? This God who is victorious in battle. Isn't that the image that you find there? And so what this probably is referring to, best guess, sometimes when Israel would actually go out to fight, they would take the Ark of the Covenant with them. As a representation at the end of the day that the battle is God's. And then they would bring it back into the tabernacle or the temple, depending upon where they were. If that's the case then my guess is 7 to 10 is talking about God who has fought for us and wrought the victory for us is now in this symbolic way coming back to this temple. I think that's probably what's going on here um, because of the battle scenes. Now, why would gates have to lift their heads? Kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? 
I mean, you read some of the symbolism, and, and although there's debate, at the end of the day, if I'm in the city and the warriors go out to fight and they lose, what happens to the city? Right? <laughs> You're like in big trouble, right? Does that make sense? And so you kind of hold your head low and you're a little bit nervous about what's going to actually happen. But if that Ark of the Covenant comes back with, the whole, with everybody and they're coming in, they're saying, open up the gates. People are going like, and, and matter of fact, don't just open them up, lift up the gates. Everybody, raise your head. It's all okay because we have won the battle. I think that's probably what he's talking about here. So, so God has won the battle. Open up the gates. This particular psalm, we know from later writings, was quoted oh, many, many, many times in various uh, venues. But you know one place where it surfaces, which I found to be really interesting? On Sunday mornings, the Levitical priests were supposed to recite this psalm. Do you know who came into Jerusalem on a Sunday morning? Jesus. Can you imagine being in? And, and so for Israel's history, there was this recognition. If we win any battles, if there's ever going to be victory, it should only be because of God. And what we do is we recognize as worshipers that the battle has been won by God and we receive him back and we accept him and we're joyful and we're receptive because victory comes from God. That's the way they're supposed to live. Can you imagine on the triumphal entry, Jesus is coming in up in the temple. The Levitical priests are saying, lift up the gates, open them up. The king who let the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? It's God. And who's coming into Jerusalem about that time? Jesus. That's amazing. How well did the Jews do with Jesus? Oh, some worshipped. But not as a whole. And within a week, Jesus will be killed. Was there a victory? Ha <laughs> ha. There was a victory because death was destroyed in the resurrection. Sin was paid at the cross. And although the nation rejected him, the greatest victory of all time was wrought by Jesus Christ. And true worshipers like us, people that know Jesus Christ, we believe he is the creator God of all. We believe that repentant hearts who know Jesus live honestly and openly before him, can come into his presence and say, God is about changing me. I'm not perfect, but God is about changing me. Clean hands, pure hearts, truth tellers. And we recognize and we receive the king of glory. Because the victory comes through Jesus Christ. So, when we come to worship on Sunday, which should just be an overflow of what we do during the week, how would you describe your worship? Not just here, 
but during, a week, during the week. This text will tell us that worship in humility, we should worship in humility and purity because of God's exclusive sovereignty and holiness. Worship the true and living God because you see how great he is in creation, because you see how great he is in redemption. And then because we are redeemed as repentant sinners, we can come into the presence of God because the spirit of God is at work in our lives and we can worship. Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? I hope that's why you're here. I hope that's why you live. I hope that shapes what you do Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock when you get up, Tuesday night before you go to bed, Thursday afternoon, whatever you do, whatever you're watching, whatever it is, I hope your heart is one of, God, you're so great as creator. God, you've redeemed us through Jesus Christ. In humility, in purity, we worship you. If you don't know Christ, you may be listening to this stuff and say, this is interesting stuff that you're talking about. If you don't know Jesus, Jesus gives you an appeal in Revelation 22 that you cannot resist. You get to the end of that book and you find out, man, it is an either in or out thing. There's no third options. You, people are either in his presence or they're going to go to hell. That's it. That's it. You say, that's not politically correct. I don't care. It's the truth. There's only two. And in that context, the spirit and the bride, you know what he says to you? He says, come. Come in humility, not to impress God, because you can't. Come in humility and say, I'm a lost sinner. I need to be forgiven and brought into your family. And he will sweep you into his kingdom. And he will start the process of purifying you and cleaning you till the day you die. That's the appeal. You can't worship unless you know him. Brother and sister in Christ, please don't play with Christianity. And you know in your heart, don't think perfection. Think openness, humility, and honesty before God. You know the difference, don't you? And please don't, don't live as a sham. Don't live hypocritically. Don't, don't play games. Just every day of your life, say, God, it's you. Overwhelm me with you. Forgive me. Transform me. And then live your life as a praise and sacrifice to him. Will you do that? Because that's what it means to be a true worshiper. Father.